My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? My uncle abused me. The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Our guest today on the morning meeting is Jocelyn Matthews. Jocelyn is a social justice advocate, a truth teller, a status quo disruptor, and a mental health professional currently serving as the program director of a children's grief support center. She has worked in the field of trauma and grief, both domestically and abroad, for over 10 years. She's currently a doctoral candidate at Rutgers University Graduate School of Education. Jocelyn is committed to seeing our communities healed and whole, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. So welcome to my good friend, Jocelyn Matthews. Thank you for joining us on the morning meeting. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm glad you're excited. I know uh, we're interviewing you today, just days after the police shooting of Jacob Blake, and in the midst of too many shootings of Black men and women during a pandemic that has been especially difficult for Black men and women. So I want to thank you for joining me and just check in on you. How are you? Um, I'm always like, you know, trying grappling with this question and about how am I doing? I think I'm doing my best to maintain and keep my sanity. There's so much happening in the world and um, not just the one pandemic of COVID, but also the pandemic that has been ongoing in our country for centuries, actually since the birth of our nation. So I've been just trying to do a lot for self-care and Part of that has been not watching the news and not looking at the video of what happened and not um, even looking for additional information. Um, Knowing myself, I go down this rabbit hole and I'm trying to preserve whatever mental um, energy and emotional energy I have. Um, So, yeah, just trying to take care of myself the best way possible. You know, I've known you for several years and We've had some pretty candid conversations, I think, about race and racial bias and white privilege. But I heard you on an Instagram Live video a couple of weeks ago, which is what sort of sparked my interest in having a conversation with you. I think you said something about you not feeling like the sting of racial discrimination until you got to college. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just, I want to say, remarkable but I thought that's interesting, and I would love for you to tell us more about that, what that experience was like for you. Sure. Um, I'll say so when I, where I grew up in New Jersey, it was pretty diverse, so I wasn't mm-hmm. exposed to a lot of um, um, racial bias and injustice in that regard. But I do have a father who grew up in the South, mm-hmm. in Alabama, so I was always kind of guarded just because of hearing his stories. But my first kind of introduction to what racism is, it was in college. It was my freshman year of college. Um, I didn't know much. I was a first-generation college student. And I, once again, coming from a very diverse uh, community, I assumed that all of my white teachers and advisors and colleagues would um, be looking out for my best interests. And so I was in an English class. I was the 
only person of color, not just the only black person, but the only person of color. Mm -hmm. And my professor, it was English class, she was taught, start talking about black English. And I chose to ignore it. And she said it again. And so then everyone turned to look at me. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to be forced to talk about this. So I was like, well, what is that? What is that? Like, what is black English? And she's like, you know how you guys say, yo, man, what's up? And I was like, actually, I don't because I don't speak that way. And and then after that, we had several discussions and it came to the end of the semester and she gave me a horrible grade. And so I'm not, not trying to toot my own horn, but I'm a very good writer mm -hmm. <laughs> and always had been like AP English classes or honors classes. And so to get this horrible grade, I was like, well, what is this about? So, of course, I go to ask and she wouldn't talk to me about it. And eventually I went to the dean to ask, like, what's going on about this grade? And could it be like, you know, um, investigated, I guess. And he came out and said that and this is. So, you know, at the end of the school semester, everybody's in, like, the main office, like, where the dean's office is, like, you know, either yeah. trying to fix grades, whatever. <laughs> and so there's tons of people in there. And he comes out and he says, she said that you're, you were harassing her and you're a hooligan. And it's in front of a ton of people. Once again, I went to a, um, my freshman year, I was at a, 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 on the campus with um, very, very little people of color and very little black people. Like, all the black people knew each other. It was, that's how small it was. And so it stood out. Right. And mm -hmm. that was like my first kind of like I am now he believed her based off of just what she said. There was no conversation with me about what happened. I'm the assumption that I was harassing her to the point of being called a hooligan and then being said in front of all of these people. And like, how do you justify your existence? And your right to, you know, due process, quote unquote, in yeah. that situation when all these people are just staring at you and assuming something about you based off of how you look. That mm -hmm. was the only thing he'd go off of, right? Yeah. And believing her based off of how I look. And so that was like my first kind of experience with being treated differently because I look different. Mm -hmm. Did you consider that like a loss? You know, this whole podcast is really about loss on college campuses. Mm -hmm. So were you aware that like the racial injustice that you're experiencing on um, college was a loss for you did you think of it in terms of that I didn't okay I I recognize it now as a loss of innocence mm -hmm. um because it's one thing to hear your dad tell you a story and to even like go down to visit where he grew up and to see it it's one thing when it's in your face and yeah. so it caused me to be a lot more skeptical and it, it caused me to to lose my voice in a sense as well. It was a loss of innocence and a loss of knowing and stepping into my truth and my voice and advocating for myself. Before that, I was a huge, I was always able to advocate. If there was an issue, I was always able to go back and forth, um, you know, speaking to the right people in order to, to rectify a situation. To have that happen and to have nobody on your side was incredibly difficult. I didn't see it as a loss then, but in hindsight, I can see it now and I can see how, how long it takes for you to get that back. Yeah. So that was just one experience in, you know, your English class. Mm -hmm. Were there other experiences on during the four years that you went to college? Not directly, I wouldn't say, because then after that, I transferred campuses, honestly. Because uh, of that? Because of that. 
I didn't feel comfortable. I knew that I was going to stand out. I was embarrassed and ashamed. Mm-hmm. And then also because I was a first generation college student. So my parents didn't know what to say or do either. And so I just, I decided to move to a different campus where I would know there were more people like me um, that look like me and I wouldn't be alone. Wow. That's a huge sacrifice to have to switch campuses. Yes, but it was the best for me at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It, and also because I went into another unknown, right? I didn't right. like, I didn't know this other campus is a lot larger. I specifically chose this one campus because it was smaller and it was a better transition, I thought, for me, mm-hmm. going from a very small town. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to go into a large campus, but it forced me and challenged me in different ways. I had to grow up a lot faster than I probably thought I was, than I probably would have if I stayed. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about the mental energy that that just one experience took from you. All right. of that energy that you had to then think about, should I stay? Should I go? You know, and the concern. And I, you know, I have to say, I was surprised when you said that college was the first experience that you've had, because so many people that I talk to have said that they've grown up with racial injustice and were aware of racism because it had happened to them personally at a much younger age. So to wait mm-hmm. until you're 18 years old to have that happen and only one time for it to change the course of your college career is yeah. significant. It makes me think about kids who grow up with more overt discrimination throughout their entire lives and what that does to their willingness to show up in white spaces by the time they are in college. And I think it's also because, and maybe other kind of like microaggressions had happened along the way, but Mm -hmm. I think also because, so once again, where my dad grew up in the South, my dad was in Mm -hmm. in a very, very small town. So my dad Mm -hmm. was like, um, lunch counter sittings my dad was doing, um, picking cotton my dad was doing. So his stories, I guess, were like this huge thing, right? And then me on a scale, me thinking like this is what racial injustice should and look should look like. And mm-hmm. because that that wasn't happening to me, I was like, oh, it's not, you know, I didn't recognize it as bad. So I'm like, there were probably a ton of tons of things that happened. I just didn't recognize it as such because it wasn't as um, overt. Right. So as you've become more aware of what racial injustice really is, what has that been like? Um, incredibly difficult. There's a, a quote by James Baldwin where he says, like, to be a Negro in this country and to be aware is to be in a constant state of rage. And part of me is like that innocence of not recognizing it is what I would want to be back to. Right. Mm-hmm. Because now you see it everywhere and you're yeah. hyper aware. Right. And hyper vigilant. And the, the expectation, sometimes you go in it and it, it clouds the way you see people, you see situations, because you're automatically walking in assuming that someone's going to say something sideways to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're prepping, mentally and emotionally prepping for that to happen. Okay, if it happens, what will my response be? Will my mm-hmm. response still keep me safe, right? Because you don't know the, the reaction yeah. of the other person. And kind of like watching your surroundings. And before that, I didn't have to do that. I grew up in a bubble, Right. And so then after that, it was like this hyper awareness of what's happening in the world around me. And then when I got to grad school and kind of doing more of a deeper dive into this, I was forced to see things very differently. And I'm grateful because I don't want to be oblivious to it, but it, it causes you to always be so vigilant. And, and it, that's exhausting. It's exhausting. I was just going to say, I don't see you that way. 
you know, I've spent a significant amount of time with you in the past few years, and I don't see you as full of rage, as you described. I see you as a pretty optimistic and friendly person. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, it's striking me as we speak about how much energy does it take you to appear that way? Mm-hmm. I'm also, I'm keenly aware that my joy is resistance. Me showing up and, and showing up joyful is resistance. And so because the, the, the paradigm of racism and being uh, racist and white supremacy and white privilege is to take away power, to take away joy, to take away my showing up and feeling like I'm supposed to be in this space and I, they're making room for me, right? And so yeah. when I show up and take up space, that's resistance. When I show yeah. up and I'm still optimistic and joyful and happy, that's resistance because mm-hmm. the overall presence of racism is for me not to be those things. And right. so I'm going to show up and do it. But like you said, it is exhausting. There have been plenty of times where I have gone into certain situations, work functions, and I'm sitting in my car preparing to go in. And I recognize that my white colleagues don't have to do the same thing. Yeah. But I'm preparing that I am going to be the only one like me. And what is that going to feel like? Okay, muster up, you know, I can do this for an hour Uh or I can do this for, you know, a couple of hours. And then I, you know, have to mellow out on the way home to decompress and to shake off, to shake that off before I go home. So I think I've always tried to be, I didn't know the word anti-racist until very recently, but I think I've always tried to be anti-racist. I certainly always thought of myself as, not racist, which I now understand is not anti-racist, but I always thought of myself as someone who was trying to be anti-racist. And I think you would say I'm a nice person and we're friends. But at the same time, I'm also aware that as I'm learning, um, which I've been really actively trying to do, I'm learning about my own racial biases and some of the things that I've done that have been discriminatory or offensive, even when I'm just trying to be a nice white person. So it it makes me think like, I think you know that I'm nice, but even people like me, I assume is even still exhausted because you, you know, you don't know if I'm going to say something that's offensive. And I guess, and I have, I know I have. So. Yeah. I, I also think that it's, one thing to be nice is also another mm-hmm. thing. We've talked about this, about allies versus co-conspirators. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, well, these people show up when I need them to. Are they going yeah. to just be the ones that, you know, will allow me to be by myself in a meeting or in front of this group of people who are being racist and have me stand alone and then come up to me afterwards and say, like, I'm really sorry about what happened or you really stood up for yourself and advocated. Like, don't tell me that stuff behind my back. Like, if you're not going to yeah. do it in the moment, then I don't uh-huh. need your, you know, your empathy yes. or sympathy afterwards. And so I think that most black people or let me just say people of color mm-hmm. might feel like, who can I trust is the yeah. issue? Because, yes, people are nice to us. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um but it's like, you know, but will these, like, when the going gets tough, will these people have my back? And that's right. when you have to kind of figure those things out. And I know that prior to, I would be a lot more naive and assume that because a white person is nice to me and is not automatically calling me the N-word or being overtly racist to me, that they're right. on my side. 
It's yeah. not until like these small little things start popping up, and you're like, mm, I think they meant something else by that. <laughs> like, yeah. I think that was actually pretty offensive. And so those are the moments that are difficult and exhausting because it's like you have to re- unlearn people and how you approach people and how you trust people and allow them into your into your circle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's the stuff that's hard, I yeah. think, is when you begin to trust and then they they uh, betray your trust. The people who we don't are not trying to have a relationship with and see them as just people we work with or just people we have an acquaintance with, yeah, mm-hmm. kind of shrug it off. Um, right. But the ones that you have developed a, a you believe a relationship with and rapport with, and then they let you down, that's when it's hard. And that's when yeah. it's incredibly hurtful. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a white person, and I think, you know, speaking to other white people, it's one of the things like, I think I have to, I have sort of accepted the fact that I, I have biases. I mean, we all do. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I hope is that when I'm called out on them and I hope that, you know, people that really care about me will call me out on them. That's just an awareness that I need to have that, oh, I just did something offensive when I didn't mean to. Um, and I need to learn rather than get defensive and, you know, say, well, I'm a nice white person. So <laughs> I think that's something that I'm I'm constantly trying to work on. I was listening to this podcast. I think it was the Culture First podcast, which is a great podcast. And there was a woman on it, and I should have written her name down, but I didn't. And she was saying that when she was in college, she felt this pressure to represent Black people. Mm. So she was saying that she was in this class, I think, like, you know, one of these big lectures, and she was afraid to raise her hand and ask a question because she thought if the question isn't exactly as it should, people are going to think, see, that's another stupid Black person. Mm -hmm. So she was afraid, and she said so she didn't get the same education that even the person sitting next to her did because she was afraid to, she felt this responsibility to represent so well that it almost paralyzed her. So she didn't ask questions. Her participation grade wasn't as good. And also sometimes her understanding, because if she didn't understand something, she was afraid to ask. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's so horrible that somebody sitting in the same classroom doesn't have the same voice that the person sitting next to them does. I don't know if that's, anything that you've ever experienced either in college or yeah I think imposter syndrome is real and imposter syndrome as a black person and also a black woman is incredibly real Mm -hmm. and probably even more heightened um being a black woman because we're constantly we think that we have to carry the weight of the world we think that people are looking at us as representing a whole group of people. And we know black people are not a monolith. We're all different and have different interests in um, intellectual levels and ed- mm-hmm. education levels. But yeah, there you go into some spaces and you're like, you know, when you see other black, I've been in spaces where I've seen other black people like doing things that I don't agree with and I'm mm-hmm. automatically embarrassed. And I'm like, oh my God, they're going to think all black people act like this. They're going to assume that I'm with yeah. them or that I'm okay with it because I'm black. And, and it might not even be the thought at all, but it's the thought in my head, yeah. the assumption in my mind. I didn't have the same experience like that in undergrad mm-hmm. because I did transfer to a more diverse campus okay it did happen to me in grad school when I was working on my master's and it definitely happened to me in this doctoral program absolutely where I am like 
I don't get it like everybody else is getting it because everyone mm-hmm. else is vibing with this professor and kind of spit firing things that they picked up from the readings. And I'm looking at them like, how'd you get that from the reading? I didn't get that from the reading. Oh my God, right. I didn't read it to see whether they read it. How did they get that? And I didn't. Or I, because I went to, uh, you know, pretty prestigious quote unquote um, grad school for my master's. And I was always wondering like, are they looking at me, you know, wondering like, how did I get here? And do I belong mm-hmm. here? And that was a constant fight for me to prove that I belonged there, to prove that I earned my way there and that it wasn't just some kind of like, you know, a fluke in a sense or meeting a quota. And so that was an issue for me as well, as well as at the same time contending with understanding better about, like I learned about microaggressions in grad school, never heard a term before I hit those walls (laughs) <laughs> in that hallway um and so you so uh, learning all those things at the same time I'm dealing with this like inferiority complex because I'm here um yeah. and now I need to make sure people know that I've earned my way here so I was like constantly fighting with these things at the same time but I will say I had my program um at this school was probably the most diverse out of all programs and so a lot of my professors were, a majority of them were people of color. We had more people of color than we had anything else, I think. Okay. Um, so that helped. Yeah. I remember once, I think you were in this meeting. We were in a meeting together. And I don't remember exactly the whole conversation, but I was saying something about I was going to a space where it was mostly black people and I was going to be one of the only white people there. Certainly for me, that's unusual that I'm in a space where I am a minority. I said something about how, I guess, you know, we can all probably relate to the fact that, uh, you know, we feel different sometimes or something like that. What I was trying to do was normalize the experience of feeling different. Mm -hmm. And another white person in the room said, no, I've I've never felt like that. I've never been in a room where I felt like the minority. Mm. And at that moment, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I just totally minimized the experience. Were you in the room when that happened? Do you remember? I that? don't know. OK, you might not. have. It might have been somebody else that was in the room. But I remember mm. thinking, oh, I just totally minimized the experience when I was trying to, you know, use one of my social work skills like normalization. But really, mm. that's not what I should have been doing. I should have been <laughs> validating the experience of, you know, somebody of color when you walk into a space that's frequently white. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking about, you know, on a college campus, uh, when things like that happen, those kinds of, you know, microaggressions, what's helpful then? What what could a white person do um, or a black person do in a moment like that? Acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, no one's perfect. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall short. And I don't think anyone's expecting perfection. I do think people are expecting people to recognize my humanity by saying like, oh, my God, I didn't recognize, you know, how that would have impacted you by me saying that. And then we can dialogue. We can have a conversation. But if you don't bring it up or don't acknowledge it or if I bring it to your attention, you become defensive, then we can't move forward and have like a very, um, you know, a very productive conversation about like, oh, what does that mean? And how does that impact this person that heard it? Um, and also to make that space safe for them going forward. So right. I think acknowledgement is the first thing. And I think we talk about it all the time, like, you know, it's, um, what's that Maya Angelou quote? That 
anyways, about like, you know, making mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. But like, you know, mm-hmm. we have to at least acknowledge them. I yeah. think acknowledgement is what makes people feel safe in spaces. Mm-hmm. As soon as I said that comment, I knew it was wrong. I knew that I had to examine that, you know, what I had said and and how I want to make sure that people of color feel like I see them. And I felt like I knew I had just invalidated their experience. And yet I was defensive and I felt so vulnerable or something that I didn't say anything. And I think that's exactly right. I should have said, "Ooh, that probably, you know, was offensive to someone. Um, And I think that's a very good point to just acknowledge it in the moment, which is hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard for the white person. And it's also really hard for the black person. It takes courage to to say something and it takes courage to to really um, hear too. And to take it in. And but the thing is that we all need to be courageous right now. We all need yeah. to have the courage to hear and also the courage to say. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the killing of George Floyd was a horrible thing mm-hmm. um, that we wish never had happened. And yet um, it has brought a conversation that has been so needed. And you know, I am grateful that there is conversation happening. Mm hmm. And I do recognize that if this, because this has been happening for years, right? And we, and and the black community or people of color, and even some Mm -hmm. white people have been talking about this for years and years and years. But I think that COVID allowed people to be still enough because Mm -hmm. where else can you go to get away from it? You can't. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. So it caused you to be still enough to, to hear it. And so it's incredibly unfortunate that this man lost his life. Um, But I think that the fact that, um, it happened during this time. It's caused people to listen and to, to perk up to what's happening, um, to sure. wake up to what's happening so that we can have these real conversations and also to, to shed light on, you know, how COVID is impacting, you know, communities of color. Um, being And I think even that, before that, people weren't acknowledging how communities of color were being impacted by COVID and how they were dying at disproportionate rates. But now it's like you have nothing else but to sit and listen because now right. you can see it. It's black and white, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And so, once again, unfortunate that he lost his life. Um, but the fact that we are taking this to make some change um, mm-hmm. and to have these conversations, I think, is the, the positive out of this. Absolutely. It's the killing of black men and women and the disproportionate deaths of black people because of COVID. Mm-hmm. So there's just so much heartache uh, amongst, you know, the black community that it's just impossible to ignore at this point, even mm-hmm. for, you know, people that have been trying to ignore it for centuries. Right. So I think also this idea of like all this happening during this time when people cannot be together um, yeah. I know all communities kind of get together and gather when, um, you know, people have died and to mourn and honor the, the lost, um, those of who, those who died. But I think it, particularly in brown and black communities, because that's a huge part of what we do. And we gather and rally around each other during crisis. So not just mm-hmm. the crisis of losing someone, but any crisis. And sure. the fact that we haven't been able to do that, um, and I don't think that any no humans were made to to operate in isolation and to and to not be in community um, and to be forced to not be in community. How that's impacting us on an even deeper level, too, um, because we can't gather and we can't rally in the same ways and we can't be amongst our 
our village um, yeah. to get the necessary supports that we need during multiple pandemics um, and the toll that they're going to take emotionally on communities and people just want to be around each other and they can't. Mm-hmm. So how that will impact people um, and how we grieve and how we deal with loss and not just the loss of a life, but the myriad of losses that we're all experiencing right now, how people, how do we um, kind of um, recuperate? How do we build resilience when we don't have those necessary tools and resources that we normally have to build resilience and to cope? And I think it also, um, you know, shines light on the need for mental health services specifically Mm -hmm. amongst people of color, which has been significantly lacking forever and really force people to think about creative ways to uh, to reach communities, disenfranchised communities especially. Right, right. The other thing I wanted to just say is that, you know, for those who are listening who are non-Black, non-Brown, not people of color, find ways to show up for the people that you care about. Show them mm-hmm. that you care. And the way you do that is by showing up and by asking the questions. Um by being present, but also it's not about a social media post. That's one thing, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but take it a step further. It's how we vote. It's how we um, will speak up for them in the boardroom, how we'll speak up for them when there's some kind of injustice happening at the gas station or wherever you go. That's how you show up for people. Um, and then for those people of color who are listening, find your joy, chase your joy, mm-hmm. embrace your joy. That's resistance. That's how we keep doing this another day. We can't fight if we're not here and not just here physically, but emotionally and spiritually um, healthy. Right. That's how we we show up and that's how we make it to another day. That's how we fight for another day is by chasing our joy, embracing our joy, um, but also showing them that we're still going to be here no matter what. Absolutely. I will say some other things, some other recommendations that I have. And reading a book is lovely and yet not enough. But um, I just finished reading How to Be an Mm Anti-Racist, which I found incredibly powerful and has some really great actual action steps that there's many of them. And I'm trying to focus on just a few, but it's a great book and I would highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. I also just finished the uh, short series podcast called Nice White Parents. Mm, uh, which mm-hmm. it specifically talks about segregation in schools. It's specifically about a middle school, but I think it's a really good podcast for people uh, to, to listen to, especially white people. I always ask at the end, just how are you taking care of yourself? And I also, you know, are you taking care of yourself? Some people might say that they're not, <laughs> but um, are you doing small things, big things to take care of yourself during all of this? I should be doing a lot more, <laughs> but um, I definitely am a huge proponent for um, therapy and mm-hmm. I go to therapy weekly and it's amazing. Um, it's a way to decompress and a way to kind of shake the world off at least for an mm-hmm. hour. Can I ask, are you doing that through teletherapy right now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's available. I think that's a really good point that mm-hmm. therapy, I actually feel like, is more available now than it had been because you don't have to go anywhere. Absolutely. So. And some insurance companies were actually paying for it, um, at least during the beginning parts of COVID, you know, because people were in so great, such great need. 
I've also been really good at upcycling furniture. <laughs> oh, fun. So I have recognized that, you know, part of my joy is seeing something that didn't look so great and turn it into something absolutely beautiful. And it's a way to kind of like hone my, uh, my energy and frustrations and anger or whatever I'm feeling into this project. And that's brought me a great joy. And decorating, um, I moved, and so I needed to like decorate, and like even that has been has been bringing me a lot of joy too. But I think really understanding and appreciating and embracing my circle of friends, and I think that has helped a lot. And and trying to um, having people in a safe place to unpack your stuff with is so important. I wasn't always the one I would usually pay, play my cards really close to my chest, but I recognize mm-hmm. that. And especially during these times, it's important to have people you can share your life with and share your heart with that can support you. Having that has been great. And so we do like, you know, cooking contests virtually, mm-hmm. um, you know, happy hours. We, we even watch really bad movies together via like Netflix <laughs> party. Um, yeah. And that's been great. And, you know, we can laugh and talk and it's not always serious and humdrum. Um, mm-hmm. It can be very like silly, but it's. It's great to have those people that's a, a safe space no matter what you're doing. Probably important to me. Well, I appreciate you sharing your heart and life with us today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime, Jocelyn. I'll include your contact information in the show notes. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you, they'll be able to do that too. I also wanted to make a big announcement today. After much planning prepping and reflecting, I have started my own business called Inner Harbor. I'd love for you all to check it out. Its purpose is to support students preparing to go to college as well as helping them succeed after they have experienced a loss while they are at college. So you can go to www.inner-harbor.org to learn more about how Inner Harbor can train, consult, educate, and support your school or agency. Um, It's been a labor of love, and I hope that you'll check it out. Next week on the podcast, I'm interviewing Michael Hebb. He is the founder of Death Over Dinner. Some of you may have heard of it. It's a really cool organization. You can check it out. We'll be talking about the need for young adults to talk about death and how to have those conversations with your kids. So tune in next week for that. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.